You're listening to audio provided by Valleydale Church. To find more resources or to donate to this ministry, please check out valleydale.org. Dr. Henrietta Mears experienced blessing and disappointment in life. She was blessed with an amazing family, born in 1890 to a loving family, the youngest of seven children. She had a great family atmosphere. They started the day with Bible reading and prayer and hymn singing. It was a great way to grow up. She was saved at age seven on Easter Sunday. She grew rapidly as a young follower of Jesus Christ. But she also experienced disappointment. When she was age 12, she was diagnosed with muscular rheumatism and was crippled and often in chronic pain. But two years later, God miraculously healed her through the prayers of a family friend. Uh, Dr. Mears was also, also had poor eyesight, and the, the doctors told her, you're probably going to be totally blind at some point, yet she was able, by the grace of God, to read and write throughout her whole life, even though she wore thick glasses. When she was 20 years old, her mother died, and even though she was a, already a believer, she completely surrendered her life to Christ. She sensed God calling her into ministry, and so at, at, in 1928, she accepted the position of Director of Christian Education at Hollywood Presbyterian Church in California. And she went there. They were running about, 600, uh, about 450 in Sunday school. And after a period of time, they were running 6,500. God used her in a miraculous way. She wrote curriculum. She trained leaders. She taught the college group, which alone had about 600 people in it. God just multiplied her ministry there. And one thing that he also gave her was a home. God gave Dr. Mears a home there close to the campus of UCLA. And you remember last week we talked about a young couple named Dr. Bill and Vonette Bright. That couple, the Brights, they began a ministry on the campus of UCLA called Campus Crusade for Christ in 1951. And Dr. Mears invited the Brights to live with her. And so they came in for a period of 10 years the Brights lived with, the, with Henrietta Mears, and Henrietta, shared, they shared expenses, they shared meals, they had hundreds of college students, all kind of college students in their homes, and in and, and their home, and they were, many were saved, many were discipled, become followers of Christ. This is what Dr. Bright said later in his life. He said, I've had the privilege of knowing many godly pastors and great Christian leaders, but no one has influenced my life more than Dr. Mears. Isn't that interesting? He got to see a, an up-close and personal um, picture of Dr. Mears because they shared the same home for 10 years. You see, Dr. Mears didn't view her home as only her own. It was a tool for ministry. If you and I are honest, both blessings and disappointments can derail our walk with God. Sometimes the blessing of a promotion, the blessing of a child, the blessing of some financial provision can, is a wonderful thing in itself, but sometimes they can take our eyes off of God and we get to focus on the gift instead of the giver. On the other hand, disappointments in life can derail your walk with God. It could be the disappointment of a miscarriage, the disappointment or of the loss of a job, the disappointment of a divorce. And those types of disappointments, if we're not careful, can derail our walk with God. So tonight we want to talk about staying totally committed to God, even when we face blessings and disappointments in life. And we're going to look at a woman in Scripture. We're not even told her name. 
But we're told that she had blessings and she had disappointments. And she stayed totally committed to God. And we see Elisha ministering to her. Elisha saw her when she was blessed. He saw her when she was disappointed. And in the midst of all that, she stayed totally committed to God. So I want us to look at 2 Kings chapter 4. We continue our study with Elisha, 2 Kings 4, 8 through 37. And we're going to look at four points on how you and I, in the midst of the blessings and disappointments in life, can stay totally committed to God. So turn there with me, if you will. One day, Elisha, verse 8 says, went on to Shunem. The town of Shunem was located in the Jezreel Valley, about 20 miles northwest of Elisha's hometown of Abel Mehalah, and about 20 miles southeast of Mount Carmel. So it was right there in the middle in the Jezreel Valley. Elisha would often pass through there, either on his way to Carmel or on his way to his hometown or somewhere else in the Jezreel Valley. He was familiar with that area. There was a wealthy woman there, it says, who lived there. Now, wealthy here really refers to her status in the community. She was a woman of high social standing. She was a woman of great influence. Uh, Now, she may have been wealthy financially, but it speaks more of the greatness of her social standing. This particular woman, it says, urged uh, Elisha to come and eat with her and her husband. Now, urge means to persuade. Now, we don't know exactly how she did that. Maybe she baked some fresh bread and the aroma of that bread was going out into the road. And she said, hey, wouldn't you, wouldn't you love to come in and, and have lunch with my husband and I? We'd love to get to know you better and to minister to you. Maybe it's her warm smile. Whatever it was, she persuaded Elisha to come in. And so it says, when, so whenever he passed that way, he would turn in there to eat food. He did this per, for a period of time. And one day, the woman said to her husband, hey, uh, why, don't we, why don't we build a place for, for this man of God? And so they did. They built a place. It, was, it had an, its own external entrance, a place on the roof, a permanent structure, so that when Elijah passed through, he could spend the night. He could rest. He could be refreshed. He could spend time with the Lord, have a nice, quiet place to do that. And you notice the accommodations here. It says, you know, there'll be a bed, a table, a chair, a lamp. Nothing fancy, just simple accommodations for the man of God. And so uh, she was not looking to charge him or this was not a business venture. This was an opportunity for her to minister to the man of God. So this brings us to our first point tonight of four of how how do you and I handle the blessings and disappointments in life without letting them derail our walk with God? Here's number one. Our blessings in life must be used to bless others. Our blessings in life must be used to bless others. This is a biblical principle. It goes back to Genesis 12. You remember that when the Lord told Abram, in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. In other words, you're to be a blessing to other people. God was to bless the Jews so that through them, the world would be blessed. Psalm 67 says, verses 1 and 2, may God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. Why? that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Say, God bless us so that through us, the world may come to know you. Your saving power may be known among the nations. Whatever God blesses us with is to be used to advance his kingdom. Uh, In my adult life, on two different occasions, I've lived with another family in their basement. Uh, They were both very nice basements, by the way. Uh, But one of them as a single man, one as as a married couple. And as a single man finishing at Dallas Seminary, I needed a place to live. 
And there was a sweet, godly family in the church that, that opened their home, allowed me to live in their basement for about six months. And it was, it was very nice. I, got, got, I had great fellowship with them, got to know them well, became really good friends. And then a number of years later, when Courtney and I had two young children and needed a place to live in another state, a, a sweet couple in our church opened their home and allowed us to come live there for uh, several months. And it was God's provision for us. But these were, these were two different couples who loved the Lord, who just didn't see their home as their own, but saw it as a tool for ministry. And it, it was a blessing uh, to me. It was a blessing to our family during those times. Uh, what about you? How, how do you view your home? Are you, are you stingy with your home? Uh, or do you view it as a tool for ministry? See, some of you could open your homes to adoption or foster care. You could open your homes for life group uh, events and, and gatherings at your home. Or you could open your home to start a life group in your own neighborhood. You see, in the, in the months and years to come, we're going to talk more about reaching our neighborhoods for Christ in, in the 7 to 10 mile radius from our church. And we, we need many of you to open your homes and to say, Lord, this is your home. And if I'm going to reach my neighbors, they may never come here to our campus, but they may come to my home. And so we, we need you to do that. And, uh, but unless we release our homes to God, then, then we, we, won't, we probably won't do that. Uh, but this unnamed woman saw her home a, as a, a tool for ministry. Now, this woman also ex experienced disappointment in her life. And we're going to see that in verses 11 through 17. One day when Elisha was there, he was with his servant Gehazi. Now, Gehazi is in the position Elisha was. Remember, he served Elijah for a period of about 18 years, I read. And so now Gehazi is in that same position. He's serving and ministering to Elijah. And so now they're there one day, and verse 13 says, uh, And he said to him, to, to the servant, Say now to her, that is, say to this woman, See, you've taken all this trouble for us. That phrase literally means you have trembled, or you have been in panic for our care. This woman was in panic for her care. Just the idea of just, hey, guys, what, what can I do for you? Hey, hey, can I get you anything else to eat? Can I get you something to drink? Do you need a blanket up in your room? Just looking for ways to serve these men. And Elisha says, hey, let's see, what can we do for her? This is a good word for, for all of us. It's, it, is, it is great to receive hospitality, and we should, but we should all, not always be receivers. We should at some point be givers. Some of you have been sitting in a life group maybe for years, for decades, and you've been receiving and giving, receiving and receiving, and maybe now it's time for you to give. It's time for you to be a teacher. It's time for you to be a care group leader. It's time for you to be social coordinator. It's time for you to serve in some way. Uh, maybe others of you, people have brought you meals for years, and now it's time for you to start making some meals for other people. See, Elisha did receive her hospitality, but he also realized there's a responsibility. He's not here to take advantage of her. He's here to minister to her as well. And so he says, let's, let's see, what, what can we do for her? Um, Elisha knew people in high places. You remember chapter 3, he, he was there with kings. So he says, hey, is there something I could do for you? You know, uh, do you want me to talk to the uh, behalf of the king or the commander of the army? Do you want me to talk to them on your behalf? And she said, you know, no, no, no. I'm, I dwell among my own people, which means I'm content. I, I'm content right here and shoot them. I don't want to move somewhere. I'm not asking for any privilege. I'm not asking for any special favor just for giving you a room. I'm fine. My husband and I are fine. Our, our needs are met. 
And so what, what do you get a person who seems to have everything, at least on the outside? Now, what are her needs? You know, uh, Elisha wants to minister to her, but he can't see that she has any needs, at least on the surface. So Gehazi has an insightful idea. He says, well, she has no son and her husband is old. Ooh, there's, there's the need she had. You see, the woman had a secret heartbreak. She had struggled with infertility. The, there was a deep desire in ancient Hebrew culture for every family to have a son. You see, a son would carry on the family name. The son had the title to the property, and they didn't have a son. She, she had wealth, and uh, possibly wealth, but she definitely had high social standing. She had influence in Shunem, but she and her husband didn't have a son. And um, it was hurtful to her. And so Gehazi said, or, or Elisha says, at this time, at this season, about this time next year, you shall embrace a son. Now, notice how she responds, verse 16. No, no, my Lord, oh man of God, do not lie to your servant. You, you, you see there's a fresh wound there. She, she has a hidden heartbreak over not being able to have a child. She had probably given up hope of ever being able to hold her own baby, but she still had the hurt in her heart. She'd given up hope, but she still had the hurt. And so you can, you can see that by her response. It's, she's essentially saying, don't get my hopes up. You know, maybe, maybe she had been there many times before where, hey, is this the month we're going to get pregnant? Hey, maybe, hey, maybe this year I'm going to get to have a baby. And, and those years had passed, and, and she just had finally said, well, forget it. I'm probably never going to have a child. But, but man of God, don't get my hopes up because I've had my hopes up before, and it never worked out. And there's hurt and there's hidden heartbreak. And the wound of infertility was still fresh. And she didn't want him to reopen that wound and expose it as it was. People around you may appear that they have everything together. But I assure you, there is some hidden heartbreak in their heart. If, if they were honest with you, there's some, some hidden heartbreak that your neighbor has. There's some, they may appear fine on the outside. But all of us in life have probably experienced the death of some type of dream. And for her, it was the dream of having a child. And there was heartbreak. Some of you may have dreamed of having children as well. Some of you may have dreamed of having a marriage of 50 years and your spouse passed away or you went through a divorce and it just hasn't turned out like you thought. And, and there's, there's, there's still a hidden heartbreak. You've, you've, you've tried to move on and you know, things look okay on the outside, but, but there's still, some, there's still a, a wound there. And occasionally it, 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 it still hurts. And, um, but look what happened, verse 17. But the woman conceived, and she bore a son about that time the following year uh, in the spring, as Elijah has said to her. Here's our second point tonight. Our disappointments in life must not dominate our lives. Our disappointments in life must not dominate our lives. Maybe some of you have allowed a disappointment in life that was very real, very hurtful. All of that would be true. But for some reason, it's just dominated your life and you haven't been able to move on. This woman was able to move on. She was able, even though she was still hurt, and that hurt is real, she was able to move on and minister to other people. She didn't ask him for a child. She, she said, no, I, I'm, I'm fine. I, I live among my own people. I'm content. Um, Dana grew up on a ranch in Wyoming, desired to have a career in media. When she was in elementary school, about third grade, her dad said, hey, I want you to read the Denver Post and, 
in the Rocky Mountain News. I want you to read it every day. And when I come home, I want us to discuss two articles before dinner. And so that just became routine for her. She'd look at the news and she'd discuss it with her dad in the evening. And so she really developed this strong desire to be in media one day. So she grew up and became an adult, got married. And one day she received a call from the Bush campaign, uh, probably by, the, it must have been in the year 2000. And and, and they wanted her to be the spokesperson for the Bush campaign in California, except it was a volunteer position. It was not a paid position. And she was, her husband was starting a new business, and, and they needed her income at the time. So she, she said, I, I, just, I can't do it. I, I just can't do it. And so she had to turn down the opportunity. She hung up the phone, and she, she just uh, cried, and she said, well, now I'm never going to get to work for George Bush. She was devastated. So she tried to move on with life. Shortly after that, she was offered a job at the Justice Department in Washington, D.C. as a spokesperson. She took that job and began doing that. In 2007, she was offered the White House press secretary for President George W. Bush. And Dana Perino served in that capacity until his term was over. And looking back on that experience early in her life, this is what Dana said. These things that feel like setbacks at the time turn out to be a setback that sets you up for something else. See, Dana was disappointed for a season, but she stayed the course, and it worked out for her. And this woman certainly would have been disappointed probably for years because she couldn't have a son. But she moved on, and she ministered to people in spite of that disappointment. And you know what? She became a mother. And you see that here in verse 18 or verse 17. But then in verse 18, you see when the child had grown. So she, we, I, as best I can tell, she experienced about four to seven years of motherhood. She, her, her child was still young, but she had had several years with him. And one day the child goes out to the field. Now, it mentions something about reapers. And so this must have been during the harvest season when it was warm outside. And so the child goes and all of a sudden complained about his head. He said, oh, my head, oh, my head. And so his father said, hey, let's take him to his mother. And so the child sat on his mom's lap until noon, and he died. The joy of motherhood for this woman had now been given over to the grief of death. We're not told the cause of death, but the best I can tell, it was probably a heat stroke. His head started hurting. He shortly after he passed away. So she immediately, she took him up to Elisha's room, the upper room, and laid him on Elisha's bed. Probably Elisha or Gehazi's bed. Laid him there and, 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 and went out of the room. Now, why, why would she do that? Uh, she wanted to hide the death from her husband because her husband probably would have had him buried right away. It was hot. You don't want a dead body in your home. So they would have buried him right away. But see, she has faith that this is not over until Elisha says it's over. And so she's going to go see the man of God. So she prepared to go see Elisha, and she's demonstrating faith here. She's not taking death as the final answer. And we, we need more people like that in the world today, especially in the church, that just have that type of faith that says, no, I will not accept that that marriage is going to be over. I will pray and I will minister to that couple as long as I can so that they will reunite and reconcile. I will not take that as a, as a I will not accept that that child's going to be wayward. I'm going to pray. We're going to minister to that child. We're not going to give up on that child. She had that type of faith. 
that she said, no, I've got to go see Elisha. So she uh, mentions it to her husband. She calls her husband, send me one of the servants and one of the donkeys. And he says, well, why are you going to see Elisha? You know, it's neither the new moon or the Sabbath. Those were days set aside for worship where no ordinary work was done. And then she just says, all is well. She uses the word shalom. All, all is well, which means uh, I really don't want to have this conversation right now. She's, she's deferring the conversation. And today we might say, like, I'm fine or I'm good. And uh, there's obviously something tragic has happened, but she's not wanting to talk about it. She's got an urgency. And so she tells her servant, hey, don't slow down. Let's just go. So they take off to Mount Carmel, about 15, 20 miles away. She arrives at Mount Carmel. Elisha sees her and then sends his servant Gehazi to go check on her. And so Gehazi asks about her husband, how, you know, how about you, how about the child? She says, same thing, shalom, all is well. Well, all is not well. Her son has just died. But the point is, she didn't want to tell Gehazi. She wanted to see Elisha. She goes to Elisha, grabs hold of his feet. Now, this, this, this position represented three things. One, she's desperate for the power of God. Two, she's humble. And three, she has respect for Elisha. And so Gehazi is uncomfortable with what's happening here. He tries to move her aside, uh, but Elisha just realizes there's something deeper going on here. And he, he, said, he said he discerned she was in bitter distress, and her soul was bitter, which made her disposition bitter, as one source said. So Elisha admitted that the Lord had not revealed it to him. And this is a good reminder that you and I have limitations even the, the, the great prophet of God, Elisha, had limitations. He, doesn't, he didn't know everything. You and I can't know everything. You and I, don't, we don't have all power. Only God has all power. Only God has all knowledge. Only God has all wisdom. And so there are limitations that you and I have in life. That's why we should be careful with how much we're working. And uh, we, we have limitations. We're not God. We, we, we need rest. We need boundaries in our life in order to stay healthy, in order to stay fresh with the Lord. And so some of you, uh, maybe that, that's the reason you're not praying as much because you're overconfident in your abilities. And we're going to see here in a little bit, Elisha's, he doesn't know everything. And because of that, we see him praying. He's desperately dependent on God. And, and, and you and I could learn from that. And so the woman went to Elisha because she wanted God to intervene. Going to Elisha was like this, essentially the same as going to God. And she's reminding Elisha, hey, I didn't ask for a son here. I didn't come to you and say, hey, will you please give me a son? I was content where I was. And so she's saying, hey, this is your responsibility. You gave me this child, God, and now I'm coming to you and asking you to help me. I didn't ask for this. I didn't create this. So this is your responsibility. So I, I need your help. Our third point tonight is this. Our disappointments in life must be taken to the proper place. Our disappointments in life must be taken to the proper, proper place. Elisha was God's ambassador. It was the same thing as taking her, her problem to God. Occasionally, I, Courtney and I will put something in the mail. Not as much as we used to because you can do so many things online. But occasionally, a thank you note, a birthday card or something will go in the mail. Now, I can give the card to Courtney. She can give it to me. But we're not the final destination because I don't work for the mail service. Neither does she. So we'll put it in the mailbox. And most days during the week, a nice young lady that works for USPS, United States Postal Service, will come and take that letter or that card and 
off it goes. And then it gets to where it's going. You see, uh, the reason that lady works for the Postal Service is because she's authorized to pick that letter up and set the delivery process in motion. She has the power to do that. You and I don't have the power to do that. And so that's why when we have a need, we have to take it to the proper place. When we have a disappointment, we have to take it to Jesus. He has the authority to set deliverance in motion. He has the power to do that. And so some of you are taking your needs to the wrong place. You take them to your spouse, you take them to your coworker, your neighbor, and you're frustrated because nothing is changing because we don't have the power to change hearts. And so you need to take your problem or your disappointment to Jesus. He has the authority and the power to change things. And so that's what we can learn from this woman here. There's one final point in our story. In response to the woman's bitter distress, Elisha sent Gehazi to Shunem with his staff in hand. And Gehazi um, must take the staff and put it on the face of the child. Now, Elisha wants him to hurry, tuck your cloak, don't talk to people on the way. This is an urgent matter, so just go. So that's what he does. And the woman refuses to leave Elisha. So next thing you know, here comes the woman and Elisha, and they're traveling from Carmel back to Shunem, about 15 or 20 miles. Now, Gehazi gets there, puts a staff on the boy's face, but nothing happens. And he left the, the room, retraces his steps until he runs into Elisha, reports what has happened or what has not happened. So Elisha gets there, goes into his room that this woman and her husband had built for him, and there is the dead child laying on the bed. And notice that Elijah closed, Elisha closed the door, and he prayed. He closed the door, just like we saw in the miracle last week. This was not a miracle for show. He was not trying to gain attention or prove how spiritual he was. He went in and closed the door, and he prayed. Because he knew that he can't bring anybody back to life, but God can. And so he prayed, and he says he laid directly on top of the child. Now, this was not mouth-to-mouth resuscitation because the child was already dead. His body was cold. But his posture here means that God often uses people to demonstrate his power and his miracles. So Elisha's staff would not suffice for this miracle. Elisha has to give himself. So we must surrender our lives to Christ if we want him to use us. Some of you are trying to use some type of staff to win your neighbor to Christ, or I'll just use a staff to do this, and it's going to take you. It's going to take us getting involved and stretching out ourselves and getting involved if we want God to bring about change in someone else's life. And so for some reason, God chooses to use people to accomplish his will. He's not using a staff here. He's using a person. And so Elisha stretches himself out. Then he gets up, he paces, walks back and forth. I believe he's praying here, as uh, Warren Wearsby said. Then he, he stretched himself out again over the boy. The child sneezes seven times, opens his eyes. He was alive. The child was brought back to life. And as you know, the number of seven is the number of completion. So this child was completely restored from death. The woman came in. Elisha said, pick up your son. And imagine the emotion she must have been feeling. But notice what she does first, verse 37. She came and fell at his feet. Not not at her son's feet, Elisha's feet. Remember before she grabbed hold of his feet. Now she falls at his feet, bowing to the ground. 
She's worshiping God. She doesn't come first and, and, and grab her son because she's learned that blessing is from the Lord. She's not worshiping the gift. She's worshiping the giver. She's coming to worship God. Then she picked up her son. But this time he was not dead. He was alive. This is our last point tonight. Our blessings in life must drive us to deeper worship. Our blessings in life must drive us to deeper worship. This woman's child drove her to deeper worship. She's bowing down on the ground here, and she's worshiping God because God has brought her son back to life. A few miles north, or a few miles from here, from Shunem, on the same uh, hill uh, was a village called Nain. You remember the village of Nain? Luke chapter 7. Jesus was going to Nain. And he noticed as he got close to the gate of the city that there was a funeral going on. There was a funeral procession. And a, a man had died, the only child of his mother, and she was a widow. Just a few miles from where this miracle here took place. Jesus had compassion on that woman. He spoke to the dead body and told him to arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And then he gave that boy, or gave that man to his mother. Elisha prayed, and this child at Shunem came back to life. Jesus spoke, and the dead man sat up. Incredible. The theological point of our message tonight is that this dead boy at Shunem represented Israel. Israel was dead spiritually. They had followed Baal. They were worshiping this false god. And God was telling them through a God-fearing woman, who worshiped Yahweh, God was teaching his people, though you are dead spiritually, if you will turn to me, I will completely restore you to me, just like I did the life of this child. It's amazing. Even though they were in wicked idolatry, God says, even though you were dead, I will make you alive if you will come to me. And it reminds us of Paul's words in chapter two, though you were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God, God had mercy. And some of you tonight may, just, may be just like that boy spiritually. You may be dead spiritually. You may be fine physically. But spiritually, you've never trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And my friend, if you've never done that, you need to know he's already paid for your sin. He was crucified for your sin and for my sin. And you can receive him tonight as your Lord and Savior. And you can be completely restored to him. And you can live the rest of your life in victory and in the power of the Spirit and one day live forever with him in heaven. It's amazing. It's an offer that, how could you refuse? Well, many years, several years before Henrietta Means Mears lived with the Brights, she made another important decision that would impact the kingdom of God. In the 1930s, late 1930s, she was involved in purchasing a resort in San, the San Bernardino Mountains of Southern California. It was an incredibly low price. Uh, Henrietta was convinced that a Christian camping experience could help people grow in their walk with Christ. She was a Christian educator, and she thought, man, if I could just have a Christian camp center where people could go and be taught the Word of God, they could grow spiritually. Well, she became one of its board members and she was involved in the purchase of that property. Some years later, 
a man named Dr. Billy Graham went to, the, the name of that, that resort center was called Forest Home. Dr. Billy Graham went to Forest Home in 1949. He was discouraged. He was in his early 30s. He was searching for God's plan for his life. He was struggling with, do I, do I go on and try to advance in education, go into higher education and get another degree and, and, that, and step away from preaching in order to do that? Uh, what, what, what do I do? Which way do I go? He's struggling. And he was even struggling with, is the Bible literally true? I mean, he affirmed the authority of Scripture, but he was just had these, he had questions and he was searching. And so he went to Forest Home at the invitation of Dr. Henrietta Mears to speak there. While he was there, he spent a great time studying the Word of God. And he kept noticing a phrase, thus saith the Lord, thus saith the Lord, thus saith the Lord. He kept, he kept seeing that and thought, this is the Word of God. And, and even though he had affirmed the authority of Scripture, this was that watershed moment where he was convinced in his heart, this is the inspired Word of God, it is eternal, it is, it is powerful, and that's what I'm going to believe. And so one night he went out into the woods and he, he put his Bible up on a, a stump and he cried out, Oh God, there are many things in this book I do not understand. There are some areas in it that do not seem to correlate with modern science. And then he fell to his knees and he said, Father, I'm going to accept that this is thy word by faith. I'm going to allow faith to go beyond my intellectual questions and doubts. And I will believe this to be your inspired word. It was, it was a moment of change. And the next day, Dr. Graham preached, 400 people committed their lives to Christ. There was power. There was authority in his preaching because he believed this was the word of God. And you see, it goes back. God met with him there, but it goes back to decision Dr. Henrietta Mears made. You see, that, that property was not her personal retreat center to get away from the world. That was a tool for ministry. And God blessed her with that. And she said, I'm going to take this blessing and I'm going to use it for the kingdom of God. You see, Dr. Henrietta Mears used her blessings and her disappointments in life to stay totally committed to God. They didn't derail her walk with God. What about you? Is there some blessing tonight or some disappointment that you've had that have taken your eyes off of God? Maybe right now you need to recommit yourself to the Lord and say, Father, please forgive me and have mercy. I've taken my eyes off of you, but right now I come back to you and I surrender. I'm completely yours. Would you bow your head with me? Father, thank you for demonstrating your love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. But Lord, you didn't just reconcile us to yourself so that we could live the way we want. Lord, we're to live under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And so I pray, Father, that every blessing we receive, every disappointment we experience would draw us into a deeper walk with you. Father, may they not take our eyes off of you, but may they just, as this woman ended up in our story, just bowing down and worshiping you, whether it's a blessing, whether it's a disappointment, I pray for my brothers and sisters tonight that, Lord, they would bow and worship to you they, you've not changed. You've not changed in the midst of their disappointment, in the midst of their miscarriage. God, you've not changed. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So, Lord, would you minister to those who are hurting tonight, who are struggling with disappointment, 
and even those who are doing great in the midst of blessing, but they've taken their eyes off of you. Lord, fix our eyes upon you because those whose mind is stayed on you dwell in perfect peace because he trusts in you. Thank you for your word. Please apply it to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, my friends, thank you for joining us tonight. Sunday morning, Pastor, we'll be back in the book of Job. You'll definitely want to be there. We'll see you then. God bless. Thank you for listening to this recording from Valleydale Church. To find more or to connect with us about what you just heard, check us out at valleydale.org.